Good morning, church family. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to our online gathering. Uh, anyone who's new, big welcome to you. My name's Chris, one of the leaders here uh, at West Village, and it's my joy and privilege to be able to open and teach and preach the Bible with you. We love to go through uh, books of the Bible here, and so we're in the, I don't know, the middle, the back end of going through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab it. I encourage you to grab a Bible or get a, a Bible app on your phone, but have your Bible open uh, with you as we go through Matthew chapter 21. And as you turn there, uh, let me just kind of set up this morning's text with a little bit of a thought uh, for us. Like there's these kind of realities that sort of make the human heart just like resonate. There's these storylines, these themes that just seem to captivate us. And one of those themes or storylines is this idea of weddings. Like we love weddings, right? It's a big day. We celebrate. We spend a lot of money preparing. Uh, I know in in my line of work, I get to participate in a lot of weddings and it never gets old. I I love weddings. And so weddings are a theme that just kind of like, they kind of captivate our imagination in our heart. But there's another another theme or a storyline and it's this idea of of kings and kingdoms, this idea of a king who goes off to war on his horse with a sword to, you know, to slay the dragon, to win the the princess, to come back and declare victory for his people. And these two themes, these these resonate with us. There's something about them that that just, they, they captivate our minds, our hearts, and our imaginations. I mean, I have four uh, children. They were small. They're all now big, and uh, when, they were, when they were little, this is what they did. We have three sons, and, and the sons, they love to play swords. They love to fight. They love to be like these warrior-type kings. And then I have my sweet little daughter, Emily, right? She's all by herself with these three uh, big brothers. Uh, and she's a tough chica, but she is also like, there's this thing in her that just loves to uh, dress up, to look pretty. And when she was little, we have all these, you know, photos and videos of her putting on makeup and putting on dresses and wanting to be a princess and, and being a princess. Uh, and if you're a good parent, a good father, then you teach your boys to, you know, fight for the honor of their little sister. And so they use this, their swords and their, their warrior mentality to protect their little sister from all the evil uh, boys who are going to come in and try and take her. And so far, that's worked out pretty well for our family. But the reality is these, these themes capture us. And every once in a while, they come together. They, they kind of collide and, and sort of the world erupts. If you remember a few, uh, a few years ago now, there was the royal wedding where Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, I'm not sure if we can still call it a royal wedding, but it was a royal wedding at least. Uh, they got married. And what happened? The entire world stopped. Literally millions of people tuned in, traveled to see this live, tuned in online, tuned in on television to watch it because there's something about this idea of a wedding of kings, of kingdoms that grabs our attention. We, we want it. it. It resonates with us. I want you to have that in mind as we come to Matthew chapter 21. Because what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 21 is we're going to get a picture of a king coming to his kingdom. We're going to get a picture of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And just like a king comes to his kingdom, Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and he is going to declare himself to be king. But not only that, we also get a picture of Jesus the groom, the bridegroom coming to rescue and redeem and save his bride, his, his church. That's, that's where the story of the gospel of Matthew is going. As Jesus heads into Jerusalem, this is what he's going to do. What we're going to see him do 
uh, in this text today and going forward is make these two declarations. One, I am king, not coming to sit on a throne, but hang on a cross. And two, I'm coming to save my people. I'm coming to rescue and redeem my bride. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 21, let's get to work. Here we go. Picking up in verse 1, it says this. As they approached Jerusalem, they, being Jesus, his disciples, but then also this large crowd who had been with them. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And let me just stop there for a second because there is a lot that is happening in this scene that we have to unpack in order for us to properly understand what Jesus is going to uh, communicate and, and what he's going to portray for us. A couple things I want to point out uh, that, that we, we just got we to gotta, we gotta grapple with and wrestle with. The first one is this, that the, as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, this is a Palm Sunday uh, text, right? Like we, we did Palm Sunday a few weeks ago and uh, you know, this is like COVID where every day is like Groundhog Day. So we're going to do it again. We're going to redo Easter. Awesome. So, uh, so here we have a Palm Sunday text. And what's happening as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem is this is the Passover week. Now, the Passover week was, was the biggest celebration in the history of uh, the Jewish people. Uh, this was reminding them of the story of the Exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus. And this is where the people of God were were enslaved to uh, the nation of Egypt. They were enslaved to a tyrannical leader, Pharaoh, and God, in his grace, saves his people. Now, the way that he does this is he, he, he's going to pour out his wrath, his justice against the nation of Egypt. But what he says to the people of God is if they were to, if they were, if they, in faith, slaughter a lamb, spread the blood over the doorpost, that the wrath of God would pass over them. And so they do this, and through a miraculous work of God, the people of God are saved. They're, they're freed from Egypt. They're free from slavery. They, they, they move from uh, slavery into freedom, and God saves them. And so this was the Passover week, and so people would come from all over the region to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate God's saving work, to celebrate what he had done. So there is, there is a massive celebration happening. The city is literally packed with people. They're celebrating, they're excited. There's like this kind of anticipation that is kind of bubbling up in the city of Jerusalem as it pertains to God's saving work. And that leads right into the second thing that we need to know that is happening in the city of Jerusalem at this time. And that is this, that the, the, the messianic fever that the people had was at an all-time high. What I mean by this is that uh, etched into the, the story of God's people is this reality that they would one day be saved by a Messiah. They, they had that as a part of their story, that, that God would send a deliverer who would come and rescue and redeem and save his people. And so the people were longing for, looking for a Messiah, one who would free them, one who would free them from slavery, one who would free them from tyrants, one who would come and, and fulfill the promises that God had made to his people, that they would be a great nation. In Israel's history, they were at one time, they, they were the, the most significant, powerful nation in the known world. But at this point in their history, that was not the case. While they were certainly not in slavery to Egypt, they were under the tyrannical rule of Rome. Rome ruled them. They did not have full freedom. They, they were not a superior nation whatsoever. 
and they were longing to be saved. They were longing, looking for a Messiah. And so every year as the Passover would come and the city of Jerusalem would be filled with people, there would be this sense of anticipation. Is this the year? Is this the time? Is this the place that God is going to send his Messiah? And it's into this reality that Jesus walks into Jerusalem. Now, don't forget what Jesus has been doing up to this point, right? I mean, it's been a long time that we've been in Matthew, but just think back to the the life and ministry of Jesus. Like, what has he been doing? He's been preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been healing people. He's been declaring his authority over nature. He's been declaring his authority over even Satan and demons and evil. He's, he's garnered quite a following. He's been teaching and preaching with authority. And, and there's something going on here. There's kind of this collision of ideas and realities that is taking place as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to come with a crowd of people, an entourage, if you will. And the people in Jerusalem, they're going to see their Messiah. But here's the tension that we're going to run into in this text, is they have a very particular idea of what this Messiah is supposed to look like. They were looking for a Messiah who would liberate them, politically liberate them, socially liberate them, religiously liberate them, economically liberate them. But then there's Jesus. There's Jesus. And look at what he does. Look at what Jesus does. Second half of verse one says this. Jesus sent his two disciples, verse two, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them out right away. So Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. He hasn't come into Jerusalem yet, and he sends his disciples ahead of him to go get a colt, a donkey, to come back. And and we'll see in a few verses that this is going to be what he enters into the city of Jerusalem on. And and the question we got to ask is why? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he he go this route, no pun intended, why does he go this route in terms of coming into Jerusalem? Why not something else? Why why not a horse? Why not a chariot? Uh, You know, why a donkey? We, we, have to, we have to understand that there is something happening here that Jesus is actually about to, and, and really this is going to be the most significant self-revelatory act that Jesus has done so far in the Gospel of Matthew, as it pertains to the crowds at least. With his disciples, he's been a little bit clearer about who he is, but with the crowds, there's been a lot of ambiguity, and this is the first time where Jesus is going to make it really clear who he is. He's going to make a really clear declaration of who he is claiming that he is. And so the donkey becomes very significant because what Jesus is doing is he's actually putting on display for the people a living parable, a living drama, if you a drama, if you will, where he's showing them that there is something significant about who he is. And notice that both Matthew and Jesus emphasize this reality of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is not the way that a king would normally enter into his city to declare victory for his people. This was not the animal that you would ride in on if you were going to come 
with a sense of honor, if you were going to come declaring victory, if you were going to come in power, it's not how Jesus comes. Normally, a king would enter in with his entourage on a white horse or with a chariot. And here, Jesus comes on a donkey. This would be like the, mo- the modern-day equivalent of the royal wedding, right? It's the processional of the royal wedding, or maybe the recessional, I'm not sure. But, but you have Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and what are they in? They're in a white chariot being pulled by horses. The streets are lined with people. It's a big, festive, celebratory event, and this is what you would expect. Now, imagine for a minute that they decided, you know, we're not going to do the chariot horse thing. We're, we're going to ask Chris if we can borrow his car, right? So, so I, I kind of take a little bit of pride in driving a 1981 Buick Oldsmobile. And this thing just gets more and more vintage as the days go on. Best $672 I have ever spent, hands down. So imagine Prince Harry and Meghan get in the Olds, right? The 81 Olds. And it's got that great ceiling, you know, the fabric ceiling, but they, like it doesn't stay up anymore, so it's like hanging down. And so Megan's hairsprayed hair is getting all stuck in the ceiling. And, uh, you know, Harry's driving it. And when he comes to a stop, it does what the 81 Buick does, which is it slips into neutral. So he's trying to fiddle around with the stick shift, trying to get it back into drive to keep it going. And the best thing about the car is this. You don't even need a key to start it anymore. The key used to just fall out while you were driving it. Now you don't even need a key to start the car. It's parked just on the other side of that wall. Somebody wanted to pull a prank. The doors are unlocked. You could drive here right now, start it, drive it away. I would have no idea what happened. But could you imagine the absurdity if Harry and Megan pulled up to Westminster Chapel in the 81 Buick? Be foolish. And yet here's Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, rolling into his palace, Jerusalem, the epicenter of everything for the people of God. He's not in a chariot. He's not on a horse. He's on a humble, lowly donkey. Why? Why does he do this? He does this because he's trying to communicate to us and to the people who he actually is. Is he a king? Yeah, he's a king. Jesus is a king. He's a humble king. He's a different kind of king than the king that the people are looking for. And that's really important for us to understand wasn't born in a big city. He was born in a small, insignificant town. He wasn't rich. He was poor. He, he lived most of his life. The first 30 years of his life, nobody had even heard of him. In the last three years leading up to his death, he, he lived as a functional, humble, homeless Galilean peasant. And he dies a criminal death on the cross. Look at what Matthew writes next, verse 4. This is getting back to what Troy read as our call to worship. Look at what he writes. He says, Matthew says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now, this is a formula that Matthew uses many times in his gospel because Matthew is writing to a particular audience, and that audience is a Jewish audience. And so they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, with the story of God, the historic story of God, where the Messiah was promised. 
And so there's many times where Matthew is writing in his gospel and Jesus does something, and then Matthew will say, this was done to fulfill this aspect of God's story. In other words, what Matthew is saying is pay attention to what Jesus is doing because what Jesus is doing is very significant because it's the fulfillment of something that God promised many, many years ago that would validate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And then here's the prophecy that Jesus fulfills. And this is a blending of Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9.9. And this is what it says, say to daughter, uh, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in other words, what Matthew is saying here is, you are going to know when your Messiah comes, and look at what he says, first part of verse 5, to say to your daughter Zion, daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem. In other words, this Messiah is going to come rolling into Jerusalem. What do we have here? We have Jesus doing what? Coming where? To Jerusalem. How is the Messiah going to come? See, your king, Jesus is the king, comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. What are we going to see Jesus do in just a couple of verses? Come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In other words, what Matthew is trying to show us and what Jesus is trying to do is put on display for us that he is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the promised one of God. And it's not a coincidence that he's on a donkey. It's not a coincidence that he's coming into Jerusalem in this way. Jesus is painting a picture for us of the kind of Messiah that he actually is. And this is a very different picture of Messiah than the one that the people envisioned. He wasn't coming on a war horse. He wasn't coming with a chariot. He wasn't coming with an army. He wasn't coming to declare victory, at least not in the way that the people wanted it. No, it was quite the opposite of that. It was completely the opposite of that. Jesus is presenting himself as a humble king. Dare I say, even meek. Not coming to sit on a throne, but hang on a cross. Not coming to declare victory over the Roman Empire, but to declare victory over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And look at how the crowds respond. Verses 6 through 9, here's what Matthew writes. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They went to get the donkey. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on, and a very large crowd spread their their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So there's a lot happening here, okay? So so imagine the scene. Remember the scene with me, right? So the city of Jerusalem, filled with people. Messianic fever at an all-time high. Passover celebration. Big, big crowd. City bursting. Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He also has a crowd with him. He's riding on this colt. His disciples and followers put their 
their cloaks onto the colt. So Jesus rides in and the people take all their coats off and they place them down on the ground. And, and Jesus is coming in and they're declaring Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, this is all a picture of these people worshiping Jesus. And on the surface, it seems great. Seems like a great idea. That's what they should be doing. They should be worshiping Jesus. Everything's good, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. There's some clues here that indicate to us that these people actually don't really understand what they're saying, what they're doing, because they don't really understand who Jesus is. Because their worship was a very particular kind of worship. They were worshiping a particular Messiah, and it's not even the Messiah that Jesus was. You'll notice, I mean, first of all, I guess you, you notice that they place cloaks down. I mean, and that was just an act of, of worship in the sense that a cloak was something of great value. It mattered a lot to them. They were taking them off, throwing them down willingly. And again, we have this picture, right, of, of a king coming into his city. We have a picture of, of a bride and a bridegroom, a wedding, processional, as Jesus comes out. I remember at our wedding, uh, when we got married, it seems like a long time ago now, but I still do remember it, mostly just because we have pictures of it. <laughs> Um, but I, I remember we, ha- we had a runner that would go down the, the main aisle for, for the ceremony. And it was supposed to be there for the bridesmaids to come down and the, 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 um, the ring bearer and the flower girls. But we, our, our ushers forgot to put it out. And so the bridesmaids came down. Uh, the, the flower girls came down. The, Kelly's brother, Brennan, was our uh, ring bearer. He came down and the runner wasn't out. And then all of a sudden, Kelly's Aunt Gail remembered the runner's not out. And she hops up and she pulls it. Uh, pulls it out, and it's kind of like, it, it seemed like an accident, but it worked out really nice because Kelly was actually the only one that, that walked on the runner. That's kind of the picture we have here, like this, this beautiful picture of Jesus coming in, and it's sort of magnificent, but it's tainted. Because notice what else Matthew records. He says this in verse 8. He says that they cut Branches. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts of this story that these were actually palm branches. And this is where the worship starts to get a little distorted. You see, palm branches were, were not insignificant to the people of God. These were actually very, uh, very much a symbol of nationalism. Uh, a palm branch would have been actually... Uh, impressed on their currency. It would have, had a, it would have been on the, the coins. And it was actually a remembrance of an event that took place roughly 150 years prior to Matthew chapter 21, the events of Matthew chapter 21, where a Jewish liberator fought to free the Jewish people from an a tyrant who was having over was ruling over the people of God. And so, as the people of God are worshiping Jesus coming in, their Messiah again. Remember Passover freed from Exodus, Messianic fever at an all-time high, Jesus coming in, they're worshiping him. These palm branches are actually pretty significant. See, what they're saying is, Jesus, we want you to free us from the Romans. They can't even see that he's he's not on a horse, he's on a donkey, he doesn't have a sword, that he's a marginalized, uh, humble Galilean peasant. All they can see is that he might be the one. And they're blinded by their own desire to be freed from the Romans that they can't even see Jesus for who he actually is. And friends, don't 
Don't miss this. You don't see it here in the text. But when they discover who Jesus actually is, they're not interested in him. If you fast forward to Matthew chapter 27, which will take us quite a while to get to, but is actually only a few days from this point chronologically, these crowds who are worshiping, they're not going to be worshiping anymore. They're going to be the same people in the same crowds that cry out to Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. So here they're crying, Hosanna, save us. That's what Hosanna literally means, save us. But here's the problem. They don't even know what they need to be saved from. They're looking for a king who will save them from Rome. And Jesus is coming as the king who wants to save them from their sins. They have a particular view of the world. They have a particular view of their need. And they have a particular view of what they want Jesus to be. They wanted Jesus on a horse, not on a donkey. And yet for us, the question that we must wrestle with is how often are we just like the crowds? We want Jesus. Everybody wants Jesus. Everybody wants some aspect of Jesus in their life. But do we actually want what Jesus is offering us? Or do we have our own ideas of what we need from him? Jesus, save me from from my self-esteem. Jesus, save me from my broken marriage or broken relationships. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, prosper me. I'm not saying these are bad things. They, They may not be bad things. They may be really good things. And they may actually be things that Jesus wants for your life. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming to die for your sins. I'm coming to free you from the bondage of your sin. And I'm not sure that's what we actually are looking for. You know, it's interesting. There's been this kind of shift in the way that that Western society has viewed itself, has viewed the human, the human being, and what it means to truly be, be human. If you were to look back over the course of the the last several hundred years, there's kind of been this view of humanity. And this this spreads beyond Western culture, and this actually spreads even beyond Christianity in particular, although it was heavily influenced by by thinkers like St. Augustine. And it was this idea that the the main problem that we have as people, uh, the thing that we keep kind of tripping over, if you will, is that we have these conflicting desires, these desires in our heart, and we don't always know what to do with them. And right now is a great example, right? COVID-19, like that's the thing. You're, you're, you're aware that this is happening, right? And, and so you're, you're locked up in your house, and not only is COVID-19 a serious disease, it's also like everybody's putting on their COVID-19, right? COVID-19, like right in this area right here. And so we have this desire, like we want to get healthy. We want to lose some weight, right? And the problem is like, you know, we're not curling enough dumbbells and we're curling too many like Doritos, right? 
And, and so we have this desire. We want to get healthy. We want to lose weight. It's a good desire. But then on the other side, there's this other desire. It's called dessert. I desire dessert. I desire to be healthy. And there's these desires come in conflict with one another. And what do we do with that? Well, well, the way that we have traditionally understood the way to handle desire and the way to truly actualize ourselves as people is not to say that desires are bad, but to recognize that there is this kind of hierarchy of desires. And the problem that we have as people is not desire, it's that our desires are disordered, right? Tim Keller would call this in his uh, thinking around uh, idolatry, he would call this like disordered loves. And the problem that we have is that we place all our hopes and dreams on our desires. And what we need to do is we actually need to recognize that these, these desires that we have are not sufficient to sustain the human heart. I mean, we see this, a great example where we see this right now is when it comes to human sexuality. Traditionally, the way that we have viewed human sexuality is that it's a good thing, given a gift given to us by God. He's given it to us to enjoy but now what we have done with human sexuality is we've moved it away from, from uh, a pleasurable gift that God has given us as a, also as a thing that we can use to, you know, have children with. And we've made it like a, a functional piece of our identity. For many people, human sexuality has become like, like a religious identity. And what I mean by that is this, is you, you find your primary means of community in your sexual ethic. You are morally informed about how the world works because of your, your view of human sexuality. It's become like this way of salvation for you, that the way to actually be saved is to realize who your true self is and just let it flourish. And what, what we have traditionally understood is that as human beings, those things are insufficient to bear the weight of all our hopes and dreams. And the way that Augustine would have, would have phrased this and helped us understand this is that we have to bring those desires into submission to a greater desire, and that desire is Jesus. This is where we get ideas like by thinkers like Blaise Pascal where he says that, that within each and every one of us, there is a God-shaped hole, and you cannot fill that God-shaped hole with earthly things. It can only be satisfied. The human heart can only be satisfied when it's brought into submission to Jesus. We don't think like that anymore. That, that would actually be probably in our current cultural milieu and the way that we view what it means to truly be human, that would actually be considered a, like a functional heresy. Because now we've kind of shifted away from that. And the way that we view ourselves, the way that culture views us, and, and the way that we have been heavily and mightily influenced is the problem is this, it's that we have repressed desires. And it's not that we have to bring our desires into submission in order to really understand and experience the fullness of what it means to be human, it's that we have to actually free ourselves from anything that would cause us to repress our desires. Any system that causes us to not allow us to do and be whoever we want to be, think what we want to think, our feelings drive our decisions, how we feel is the highest ideal. And so whatever we're feeling, whatever, whatever repressed desire we have within us, we have to let it, just let it out. We have to act on it. And that's when we'll truly experience what it means to be human. And so expectations that are placed on us because of our gender, because of our ethnicity, 
because of our socioeconomic status, those are, those are functional heresies in our, in our culture. Our secular age is telling us that in order to truly be human, we must be free to do whatever we want. Think with me for a second, and I might shatter some little girl's dreams out there. I, I apologize. But think with me for a second about the movie Frozen, okay? Um, here we have a picture, and, and, and there's a lot of good things about that movie, right? But we have this picture of this, this kind of uh, feminine, like, gal, hero, heroine, I guess, who, like, realizes who she really is. And I'm all for elevating the status of women and, and women being free. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I want you just to go back, and I want you to, like, listen to the song. There's a famous song, right? We all know the words to it, right? Let it go. Go listen to the song, Let It Go. And, and listen to the lyrics, and listen to what is being, the gospel that is being preached. It's this idea that, that this poor gal has been repressed and what she needs to do is free herself from anything that would, that would not allow her to be who she truly wants to be. There's actually a line in the song that says this, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. And this vision of humanity is the vision that we are being indoctrinated with. It's the water that we swim in. It's It's the air that we breathe. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the biggest heresy to that version, that vision of reality? It's a Jesus who loves you enough to save you from yourself, to save you from your sin. You see, in order to be saved from your sin, you have to acknowledge that not all your desires are good desires that you are indeed a sinner, that you do, in need, you do indeed need to be saved. You have to be saved from your desires. And here's the problem. We don't want that Jesus. We want the Jesus who loves us and tells us that we can do and be whoever we want to be. So we will throw our cloaks down on the road. We'll throw them down at the Jesus we want. But we will totally miss the little clues that Jesus isn't on a horse, that he's on a donkey. He's not going to sit on a throne, but he's going to hang on a cross. And we miss the fact that we're not just going to throw our cloaks on the ground, but we're going to have our palm branches in there as well, our ideas of who we want Jesus to be. And here's the danger. Don't miss this. Here is the danger. We will worship him in Matthew chapter 21. But in Matthew chapter 27, we will yell out, crucify him. When Jesus isn't who we want him to be, we will be in the crowds yelling, crucify him. Matthew closes this section like this. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. 
So Jesus gives to them the most clear self-revelation of who he is that he has ever given to the crowds, and they still don't know who he is. They still don't understand him. They can't see him. I mean, this right here should speak to the power of our preconceived notions and biases that we bring to the table, these assumptions that we bring to the table as we're looking at Jesus. Like, do not discount your mind's ability to trick yourself that you actually love all of Jesus when you don't actually love all of Jesus. Like, this right here should be a stark warning to us. These people were staring at Jesus, telling them that he is the Messiah, and they still couldn't see him. Is it not Is it not a clue that this could also be us? That our vision of who we want to be, our vision of how the world works, that it's actually tainting our ability to see Jesus, that we actually lack the ability to see Jesus as he actually is. But here's the good news, friends. Here's the good news. Go back to verse 1 for a second. Look at what it says, chapter 21, verse 1, as they approached which city? Jerusalem. Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. Again, not to a throne, right? He's not going to a throne. Where's he going? He's going to a cross. Now now think about this with me. If you knew, and Jesus did know, that you were going into Jerusalem not to be seated on the throne, but to hang on a cross, would you go? Of course not. But Jesus goes. Jesus walks towards his execution. He knows what is in front of him. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. He knows, he's aware. He walks into the city knowing that he's going to be betrayed, knowing that he will be falsely accused, knowing that the crowds that are praising him here will yell, crucify him later, knowing that he will be tortured. He knowingly goes to the cross. And he knows, he knows that you and I will throw our cloaks down one day and yell, crucify the next. And yet he still goes to the cross. Why does he do it? Why? Because although just like the crowds who do not fully know themselves, we are no different. We do not know what we need to be saved from. We don't really know Jesus, not fully. But here's the beautiful truth, church family. He fully knows us. He fully knows what we need. And he fully knows that we could not save ourselves. So in his kindness, in his grace, and in his mercy, he lovingly goes to the cross for our sin. It's amazing. It's the grace and love and mercy of Jesus put on display for us to see. And the invitation for us is to shed to shed our self-interest, to shed our palm branches, if you will, to shed our particular vision of who we are, of who Jesus is, and to see him as he truly is, our crucified Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you don't just leave us on the side of the road worshiping a false picture of who you are. You don't turn around and go back. You go right into the center of the city. You go to the cross. And even as we're no longer falsely worshiping you, but now condemning you to death by shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, you do not stop. You were not motivated by our worship. You were motivated by your heavenly Father's delight and your desire to save us. So Jesus, give us the ability. Spirit, help us to discern the ways in which we need to just shed ourselves of ourselves. That we might see you as you truly are. And as we look at you as you truly are, may we see ourselves, may we see our need, may we humbly, humbly follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.